This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's episode, we'll talk to Washington-based Ethiopian-American entrepreneur Henok Tesfai, whose story starts from parking lot attendant to leading a massive business empire in the U.S. In our culture, I think when you come here, I think uh, our work ethics, you know, when we come to the, the U.S. or in this area, because they see everyone is working, and, you know, and then I think they follow in the footsteps of others. So I think that's what they get into. If someone opens restaurants, mm. they open restaurants. If someone opens to parking, they follow, do that. They like to start something to be successful. And then I think we have a huge network. I mean, we all help each other. Mm. We work together. And next we go to East Africa, where a new report is critical of the carbon credits scheme on indigenous land in Kenya. This carbon extra that the project claim to be producing can be sold in form of carbon credits that companies like Netflix, for example, or Meta, Facebook, can buy and claim we are carbon neutral. Fiore Longo is one of the authors of the report. She's the research advocacy officer at Survival International, which is a global movement for tribal peoples. But first, as is customary on this show, we start off by listening to your opinions. And this week, we asked some Ghanaians about U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris's visit to their country. Here is what you had to say. The people of Ghana are looking forward to the uh, visit of the Vice President of the United States of America. Kamala Harris. Now, the reason why this visit is important is because, first of all, our country is going through economic challenges, and we are looking forward to our foreign partners partnering with us so that uh, the country can have some relief when it comes to the debt issues that is facing. The country, again, is making a bid for a three-point a three billion, I should say, a three billion United States dollars international monetary fund uh, bailout, and there are a lot of controversies controversies surrounding that particular application. And so, uh, the visit is uh, expected to be used by Ghanaian officials, particularly the President of the Republic, Nana Redankwe Kufuado, uh, to engender confidence in Ghana and also to place a demand at the doorstep of the superpower, the United States of America, to support Ghana's efforts aimed at recovering its economy post the COVID-19 pandemic and also the effects of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, um, the U.S. Vice President's visit to Ghana, for me, I've, I've got you know, mixed feelings about it because um, on one hand, I'm, I'm happy that she's visiting because Ghana recently has been, you know, dealing with a lot of debt crisis and, uh, you know, trying to secure a bailout from the IMF and all. But on the other hand, why now, you know, is it, is it because of the seeming influence from China and Russia, you know, and so the U.S. is scrambling to, um, to buy Africa on its side. So for me, it's, it's mixed feelings, really. Because uh, I feel like in the past, um, there hasn't been, been this much interest in the affairs of, you know, Ghana about you know, the U.S. Many thanks to all of you for sending in your opinion to our question of the week. This is Upfront on the Voice of America.
I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, and let's begin here in the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C., home to thousands of African immigrants who contribute significantly to the growth and diversity of the U.S. economy. In fact, the American Small Business Administration report says that immigrants are 30% more likely to start a business in the United States than non-immigrants. It also says that 18% of all small business owners in the U.S. are immigrants. And the story of our next guest has been described as the embodiment of the American dream. Migrating as a teenager to the Washington, D.C. region, Ethiopian-American entrepreneur Henok Tesfai worked many odd jobs, including as a parking attendant at one of the many lots around the city. And with a $50 loan, Henok went on to build a parking lot business empire that serves millions of customers across the east coast of the U.S. and in Africa. Henok was recently awarded the President Biden's Lifetime Achievement Award for his service to the community. He joins me for a conversation on his roots in business and the employment opportunities that his company has provided to hundreds of African immigrants in the U.S. Henok, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you go by Dr. Mr. What is... uh... I think you call me Henak. Henak is not. Let's talk about you and your story. Where does your story start, especially your entrepreneurial story? I think, uh, thank you. Uh, my story starts here in Washington, D.C. I'm based out of Washington, D.C. I came in uh, early 90, when maybe I was 14 years old, a long time ago. I came to look for education. And the family sent me here to go to school and study. And uh, I liked it. DC was good to me. Mm-hmm. And I decided to stay here. And that's where the journey starts. And uh, Now, DC, as a person who has lived in DC for over two decades, I know this city has significantly grown. Uh, how was DC, what, 22, 23 years ago when you started business? When I started a business, I think I started the business 1998. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started a business on U Street area. That's why I called the company U Street Parking because I didn't even know how to name the company at that point. And we were on U Street. I said, you know what, I'll call it U Street Parking. When I started U Street, it was 12 and U Street where they have the Lincoln Theater now. And I secured a parking spot, 22 spaces, and that's where everything starts. Mm-hmm. It was born. That's why the company's U Street, I mean, U Street was born on U Street. So that's one of the iconic areas for, you know, U Street parking. Right. So that's why I started a business on U Street. Right. How has that city grown in the last 22 years? What are some of the changes that you see that are actually amenable to a person, like a business person like yourself? Yeah, the last 22 years, uh, I'm in the business. I mean, I've seen big difference in the, in the city. I've seen a lot of change. The city has been growing as fast as that you expected because it was very tough, a uh, rough area when I started a business in, on U Street. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were trying to sell their house for sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000. You can't not even touch that it's house. Now, it's now millions it's now of dollars a million or $2 million. Yeah. So I've seen the areas changing on the real estate development, affordable housing, the infrastructures, you know, the people, and the, a lot of people are moving to the city. New immigrants New coming immigrants in. coming from all over the world. I mean, the city has 700,000 you know, residents, but the city growing, changing every daily basis. Because mm. uh, we should mention to our listeners that, uh, and viewers that you, actually your business, your primary business is parking. Yes. And you own a, a, a number of parking lots in the Washington, D.C. area. You have expanded to other regions, uh, but not just regular parking. These are like massive parking lots. 
uh, and that's where you found your success. But yes. did you start any business? Where did you get the bug to start uh, to, to, to get into a business? Yeah, just to you know, make make it short for you to understand. I you know I, I used to work when I came to this country. I worked in a parking company. That's what I got the experience. You know, I was parking cars and as parking attendants, cashiers, and supervisors. That's what I learned the business. So I took that experience and founded my own company called U Street Parking. I started with U Street Parking in 1998. Since then, you know, it's been changing. I mean, yes, we manage. You know, I started with 40 employees in my life in, in 1998. Now we have 800 employees all over in the country. Uh, we are the larger minority parking company in the country as we speak. We are not only in D.C. We manage the three airports in New York, JFK, LaGuardia, Newark, who's a partner, ABM is our I mean, majority partner there. And we, we manage the two airports here for the last 11 years, Dallas and Reagan, which is a capital city, the nation's capital. We, we also manage Orlando International Airport, one of the busiest airports. Also, New Orleans Airport is a partner there as well. So we started from D.C. small parking, and we grew our business to a national company. So mm -hmm. I'm very proud of to do that because we're giving an opportunity for people like us, who looks like us, giving mm -hmm. them an opportunity to work with us. Mm -hmm. So that's where the parking company started. But I have vertical companies that, you know, different things that we have done. And, you know, because I, even though I started with parking, uh, you know, now we're focused on, you know, you know, real estates, affordable housing, focus on different things, Potomac management company that we have. We manage a lot of property management. Wow, so you've well. expanded your business, yes. not just parking to other areas. Yes. And there was a point, I think, when you ran a restaurant, is that correct? Or you one of your family members? Yes, the restaurant was open in 2005. You know, my mom, as you all know, I mean, she was one of the best Ethiopian chefs in this area, mm. and we decided my mom was like to cook in the house, so I decided... Are you not saying this just because she's your mom? No, no, I'm not saying that she's my mom. <laughs> I mean, the community knows her, no problem, but, yes. you know, I opened... I agree, I agree. I opened that for my mom, who was on U Street as well. You know, U Street has been good to me, you mm. know. The city's been good to me, so I, I like to put things on 9th Street. We opened a restaurant. The restaurant been successful the last 15 years. It was called the Tete Ethiopian Restaurant. Mm. Now, my mom retired, so... Now she's not in that business anymore, yeah. but, but the institution remains. Yes, the institution still remains. Right. Yes. Um, how, what does it take to run a successful business? I mean, you've expanded from how many four employees to now hundreds of employees. Yes. What does your day look like? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, takes a lot of courage and uh, business. When you started and when you are now, it's totally different. You know. It needs a good leadership, people like me, and leadership delegating, because you can't do everything by yourself. Having smart people next to you, smarter than you are, mm. and surrounding yourself, surrounding with people yourself, are, with smarter yeah. people than you are, and bringing people, bringing experts, you know, spending money to, you know, good, good educated people that you can help and experienced people who can help you, mm. and also a network that you build, because you can't. I mean, you can't open business. You gotta build that network. An African brother that I wanted to let, you know, uh, the audience, relationship a key. Any business, you can open any business, but relationship and network. You have right. to network with the right folks. Right. They say network is your net worth. Yes, mm. your network is your net worth. you got to build that relationship. 
relationship is a key. Any other businesses in this, my experience is 25 years. Mm. You have to build a relationship and exchange information, and you need to be the right place at the right time. Mm. So that's what I learned, and you know, I started my business when I was young, but I learned it in my 22 years of business experience. That's what I wanted to share to business. And looking for capital, so relationship with banks, a relationship with government officials, a relationship with a lot of different people. You just need to really put yourself out there to build and you know, you know, try to you know, brand yourself. Mm. How would you describe the Ethiopian diaspora community here in the Washington DC area? Thousands, very vibrant, very entrepreneurial. Uh, you're, you're one of them. How do you describe it for somebody who doesn't know Washington DC and its uniqueness? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Washington, D.C., like you say, there's a lot of Ethiopian diaspora live here. I believe, I don't know, in D.C. area, 40,000, 50,000. But in DMV area, maybe we're 200, 250,000 Ethiopian diaspora live here. I mean, there are a lot of very powerful people. You know, uh, they're a lot of influential, influential people, yeah. you know, uh, they do a lot of different things. They're engaged into community business. You know, you call it, you know, I'm in the parking industry, real estate. They're, they're very hardworking you know, diaspora in this in this area. So I think they're getting more recognized, even though in in in, in the in the area world, I mean, in the District of Columbia, you know, their voice is heard. So they do a lot of different stuff, and uh, they're into restaurants, in gas stations, parking, real estates. They they they're not afraid because to try anything because this is like I think the second from Ethiopia, the second largest Ethiopian community in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. So I think this is the biggest one in this that's area. That's huge. Yes, that's, that's huge. huge. And they're in all types of businesses. Yeah. Uh, is there something about your culture that actually encourages inter entrepreneurship? In our culture, I think, uh, yes, because when you come here, I think uh, our work ethics, you know, when we come to the, the U.S. or in this area, because they see everyone is working, and, you know, and then I think... They follow in the footsteps of others. So I think that's what they get into. If someone opens restaurants, mm. they open restaurants. If someone opens to parking, they follow, do that. They like to start something to be successful. And then I think we have a huge network. I mean, we all help each other. Mm. We work together. We exchange information. And that's why I'm very proud of the Ethiopian diaspora in Washington. They really, you know, has done mm. a lot of, you know, the legwork to work together. I think that's the experience that I like to share with them because... Mm. We want to work as a team so you can be successful. I think that's the hallmark of every successful yeah. diaspora community around the world is yeah. being able to share knowledge, to bring each other in on opportunities yeah. and kind of create pathways for others who are coming behind yourself. And if you want to see successful people, you, you, know, you look at the people who, who were there before them and yeah. how they're able to pull others behind them. Uh, let me ask you as a black entrepreneur in the Washington, D.C. area or in America, what are some of your top challenges? What would you say is a top challenge for somebody who, who is trying to get into business, things that you look forward to? Yeah, the top challenges in this country, as you all know, I mean, first you're a foreigner, you come into this country, you know, and you don't, you don't have access to capital, you need to have a relationship, you don't know where to go, what to do. So that's why you need people like us or someone who can mentor you because I've been mentor, you know, so many times in the airport world when I get into it, there was a company to really mentor us to that. So. I think my goal is I think they need to find somebody who can mentor them. You know, it's like a mentor protege program, learn something from the others. I think exchange information and program and then access to capital, access to network. You know, relationship is a key. That's how you really, I think I tell everyone, you can't just open a business. You really need to build up that opportunity for them. Um, and finally, I guess I wanted to ask you, I know you're giving back to the community in different ways. I wanted you to 
plug some of uh, the things that are outside of the business arena that you're actually passionate about, including some of your philanthropic endeavors that you've been engaged with? Yeah, uh, it's, it, thank you. That's a great question, actually. I'm glad you asked that at the end. But uh, I give back a lot to this community. I open an opportunity for our community to come and work with me. That's another one. Two, I support a lot of nonprofits in this in African diaspora, not only Ethiopians, you know, any African diasporas who support and giving back to the, the community or in the country. You know, and, uh, as we speak, you know, I, I, uh, I'm the chairman of the Mary Joy Foundation in the USA. Uh, Mary Joy was founded in 20 years ago in Ethiopia. So I went and 10 years ago found this organization and I took 60 kids to raise them. Wow. And in, on my own, so I still support them. The kids grow and they leave, and then they add another 30 kids. So I try mm -hmm. to support them. So I like to give back to the community. I also created a job opportunity in Ethiopia. I run the, the Ethiopian International Airport as, as a parking operator. It's not because of the money there. We want to transform information, technology, knowledge. You know, we wanted to let them know because when people think parking is just the parking cars on the street, mm -hmm. but now the airport there, uh, you know really learn a lot and from where we take there's we took more to the operation of, yeah, of the, of the, operation of the business business. and just, we created mm. 300 jobs wow you know so we have 300 employees that work there also we expanded doing a real estate in ethiopia as we speak we're building uh a bigger estates uh building that in order for us to give back to the community also people can understand what you know different standard of the u.s standard kind of an apartment building that people can see so that's why really I've been doing that mm -hmm. so far. So our goal is for African, uh, for African country, not only Ethiopia. We want to expand our relationship to Nigeria, Ghana, other places. We're very much interested in investing if we have the local or best partner in the country because you can't just do business from U.S. to Africa. you got to look for the right and good, a very honest partner in order local, to expand partners. our business. Yeah. Local partners, yeah. whether parking, real estate, we're focused on real estate and parking, also infrastructures. Also, anything like, you know, mining and sectors that I really want to focus on. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of room to play in Africa, but you got to have a right partner. Like, you know, I tell the folks in Washington, the Ethiopian diaspora, to work with us. When you go to different countries, you got to really play with find the right, the the find the local, you know, really very honest partner in order for you to expand. Yeah. So that's what we're here for, you know, looking forward to expand our business other countries in Africa. Absolutely. Mr. Tesfai, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story and your journey and congratulations on your success. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're Thank welcome. you. That was Henok Tesfai, an Ethiopian-American entrepreneur. Henok is the president and CEO of U Street Parking Incorporated. His company has expanded from parking to multiple business ventures in the U.S. and in Africa. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Voice of America's news, talk, and music programs are now at the tip of your fingers. Find everything at www.voaafrica.com. Listen to VOA's program lineup live anytime, day or night. Pick out your favorite shows and listen anytime you want. Download our podcasts. Check VOA Mobile from your cell phone. Subscribe to VOA Newsfeed. VOAnews.com. Welcome back. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. A new report by Survival International is critical of a scheme in northern Kenya that is run by the Northern Rangelands Trust, which sells carbon credits to companies like Netflix and Meta. 
The report says that the Northern Kenya Grassland Carbon Project disrupts the lives of over the 100,000 indigenous Samburu, Borana and Rendile people while it does little to mitigate climate change. The project, according to the report, relies on dismantling the long-standing grazing traditions of the indigenous people while replacing them with a centrally managed system. Experts say that this arrangement, which is more akin to commercial ranching, is likely to threaten the food security of the indigenous people by disrupting their customary practice of migration during periods of drought. Fiore Longo is one of the authors of the report. She's a research advocacy officer at Survival International, which is a global movement for tribal peoples. So carbon credits are part of these so-called solutions. Um, and the idea is that we can actually tackle the climate crisis without reducing the emissions. So using a financial tool, a market tool. So the idea is that, um, for example, let's say an oil company can keep uh, producing emissions of CO uh, and at the same time claim that it's carbon neutral if they buy carbon credits in the market. These carbon credits are produced by projects that say they can absorb or avoid emissions for the same amount that the oil company has been uh, releasing emissions. Now, this new report released by your organization uh, says that there are some major flaws in the carbon credits market, so the carbon credit scheme, uh, especially in northern Kenya. How does the carbon offset scheme actually work, just in, for, in simple terms? Yes, well, in this case, we are talking about this very particular case. Um, there is this organization called Northern Rangeland Trust, NRT, and they say that uh, in the north of Kenya, the pastoralists, so indigenous people that live with livestock, have been overgrazing for generations and they ruin the soil. So NRT is going to explain to these pastoralists that have been doing this for generations how they really have to graze in a way that they do it sustainable. So the vegetation grow without this, the, the pastoralist, the vegetation grow and absorb more carbon. So we stock more carbon in the atmosphere. This carbon extra that the project claimed to be producing can be sold in form of carbon credits that companies like Netflix, for example, or Meta, Facebook, can buy and claim we are carbon neutral. How did this uh, organization, this company, the, the Northern Rangeland, Rangeland Trust, get the rights to own and trade carbon from these lands? Well, that's all the, the point that we are making is that maybe they do not have the right to do it. Um, the most important thing is that, as you say, there are all these projects going around about preservation of the soil, and uh, but there is no evidence. NRT hasn't provided any strong evidence saying and explaining how the pastoralists are doing it wrong. On the opposite, we know that pastoralist communities have been grazing in those areas for generations and that those areas are rich in biodiversity thanks to the way the pastoralists are grazing. But on more, those, that land that is supposed to be storing carbon is the land of the communities. And most of these lands, unfortunately, are not registered as land, as, as property of the community, Thank also to um, all sorts of process linked to colonialism and even NRT creating this sort of conservancies, as they call it, are protected areas where indigenous peoples can't grace anymore. 
So actually, there is no the, the land for in this moment. A lot of, of that land that today is producing carbon credit are land that has been inhabited by these communities for generations, mm. but they are not under um, under their uh, they are not registered uh, as their land. Right. Um, so Anna, the, the question we are raising is Anna, what Anna would give NRT the right to be trading carbon from land that actually are not belonging to NRT, right. and they are still not registered as community land. How much of this concept do these uh, indigenous communities actually understand? Concepts like carbon credits, were they <laughs> properly educated or consulted about this project? Well, I think it's, it's also not a question of only to be educated. It's actually a very difficult concept to understand, even uh, for us, uh, uh, me and I, I went to university, and nevertheless, I have to study a lot to understand this very weird thing that happens somewhere else in the market for which any company as Facebook can claim we are not actually, we are carbon neutral. And, and then because they buy some carbon credit produced somewhere in Kenya. So it's a very difficult concept. And my experience, which I conducted research in the North Kenya, is that most of the people don't understand at all what carbon credits are. They they know a little bit that they, some some white people are giving them money uh, because uh, it's there because of climate change, but they don't really understand what this means. And at one point, a lot of um, a lot of, of these past, this pastoralists told me uh, why they are selling our air, and they refer to carbon credit as something that is in the air because they can't, of course, see it. So uh, the question of the consent, uh, the pre prior, uh, prior and informed consent of the pastoralists. It's very important because NRT is making millions with this project. As I say, companies like Facebook, Netflix are giving money to this project to say they're carbon neutral. So we are talking about millions. Um, uh, we, we don't know exactly the prices because it's, it's secret, mm -hmm. uh, but we think that this project could be um, producing between three million, 300 million and 500 millions in total for the entire project, which is a lot of money. And the communities are not aware about uh, what is going on and is their land. And um, so this is one of the things. The other thing is that in the name of climate mitigation, so to NRT to get all these millions and for Facebook to say they're carbon neutral, they are changing the way of life of communities that are the most impacted by climate change because the drought in, in North Kenya is terrible. Uh, and it's exacerbating because of climate change. And the only way for these communities to survive is to do exactly what they have been doing, moving for kilometers, searching places where there is more rain or where there is more grass. And now because of this project, they are being forced to stay in an area, to not go outside this area, and to change the way they have been grazing. And all of this for climate mitigation. So it's completely mad. We are having communities that are the most impacted by climate change, having to, praise, to pay the price for climate change two times for the solutions and for the problem itself. Mm. And what are you calling for in this report? What needs to be done to rectify this situation? Well, we, we really are convinced that this project is uh, absolutely greenwashing. So this is having an impact on climate change, so on all of us, and on indigenous communities. We want this project to be scrapped. We think that Bera, that is the company that certify the carbon credits, so that say these carbon credits are actually reducing emissions, uh, sorry, mitigating emissions. We want that Bera, this organ organ uh, entity, uh, actually stop the certification of the carbon credits, so that those carbon credits are not sold anymore. 
because this is just greenwashing and it's having a terrible impact on the life of people. Mm. Are you saying that the Africa Carbon Markets Initiative is actually something that needs to be looked at again, especially when it relates to these indigenous communities? Yes, uh, indigenous peoples are the most vulnerable people in the world. They are the ones who are suffering most of climate change and they can't be paying the price for climate change that they didn't cause. All this idea of carbon credits comes from the global north, where we don't want to do the only thing that is necessary to stop climate change. That is reduce for real our emissions, not compensate them somewhere. There are so many technical and, and actually practical problems with this carbon credit that the, the possibility they are just a scam uh, is very, very high. As there are different studies that have shown how most of these projects are actually not working and are again asking the sacrifice of indigenous peoples to be implemented. Ms. Fiore, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you for inviting us. That was Fiore Longo, a research and advocacy officer at Survival International. I reached her via phone in Paris. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to all our guests and to all of you for tuning in. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are on Instagram at VOA Upfront. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter. Let's connect again right here on The Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vungani. Have a great day, Africa. on things that matter to hearts and minds of women. We are here at Kalerwe Market, Uganda, Kampala, where in this whole market, women are crying out for their situations to change. With strong opinions and expertise on things that impact and change their lives. Here in Kinshasa, campaigns to raise awareness against the spread of coronavirus are common. But getting that information to people who have no access to water, electricity, or money can be a challenge. From right here in the nation's capital to on the ground from all over the African continent. I think a big thing for me is just being able to say that when these protests are happening, uh, does it turn around into policy? We hear your voices, women's voices, our voices, and add your voice to the conversation. 